The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So I want to get started this morning with a really silly analogy, if you'll bear with me. All right, so uh, when Jude, my oldest son, was maybe two or three years old, we discovered a show that's on PBS, I think, called The Octonauts. Anybody ever heard of The Octonauts? All right. So The Octonauts, Lula, you've heard of The Oh, yeah. So The Octonauts, it's like a bear and a penguin and, I don't know, maybe a duck or something like that, and they go into a submarine and they travel all of the deep parts of the ocean and they meet all these little creatures, discover different animals, and have little adventures together. And of the kids' shows that we watch, it's one of the more tolerable kids' shows, right? We understand, parent, if you're a parent, you have young children, you know how difficult it can be sometimes to endure watching those shows. Thankfully, Octonauts is pretty entertaining. And several years ago, Jude was watching this one episode, and it was this animal that I had never heard of in my entire life. And honestly, I have been absolutely fascinated by this animal ever since. This is something, this is on the screen. I looked up actual, like, pictures of these. They're not nearly as cute as they are in, in, in this little picture here. Some adorable little guy there. This animal is called a water bear. You ever heard of this? A water bear or a tardigrade? All right, this comes straight out of Wikipedia, (laughs) which is actually a pretty reliable source, but (laughs) all right, listen to this. Tardigrades, known colloquially as water bears or moss piglets, which is (laughs) just the greatest name, (laughs) moss piglet. Tardigrades are a phylum of eight-legged segmented micro-animals. Listen to this. They have been found in diverse regions of Earth's biosphere, mountaintops, the deep sea, tropical rainforests, and the Antarctic. Tardigrades are among the most resilient animals known with individual species able to survive extreme conditions, such as exposure to extreme temperatures, extreme pressures, both high and low, air deprivation, radiation, dehydration, and starvation that would quickly kill most other known forms of life, some even being found to survive space. Tardigrades are tanks. Water bears are among the most resilient life forms on planet Earth, surviving any place, any time, always finding a way to thrive. They possess a universal adaptability that makes them survive anywhere they find themselves. Now, I've shared this quote before, and this comes from someone who is observing the life of the early church, and I just love this so much. This comes from a letter in the first century explaining who and what this new movement of Christians was all about. It says, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign, and yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. From a letter to, diagno- di- to him. 
Let me get a sip of water. Hold on. <laughs> Public speaking is hard, people. Now, Christians, a unique feature of our faith is that we are like water bears. We can survive anywhere. We have almost a universal adaptability. We are forever homeless, always wandering, forever pilgrims, yet always at home. We are always, always finding a way to thrive. Any land, any climate, any culture, any language, any geography, the thing that sets the Christian faith apart from all other places is its universality. We are like human water bears. How is this the case? How is it that Christians have been able to survive anywhere on planet Earth, wherever the Lord puts us? We've been studying through 1 Peter written to a group of believers 2,000 years ago located in northern Turkey. Peter's speaking to Christians who are suffering in exile, suffering uh, opposition for their commitment to Jesus, maybe being ostracized from their families, excluded from their social circles. They are being pushed to the margins because of their faithfulness to Christ. And what we've said each week is that we can see ourselves in this book. We look around and we think about the current cultural climate and we wonder about our time and place. You know, is, is the world becoming more hostile to Christians? Are we being pushed towards the margins? Are we headed towards a darker future for those who are faithful to Jesus? But we take hope, knowing from the example of brothers and sisters everywhere that we can thrive anywhere. And how do we survive this exile? How do we survive up under increasing opposition to faithfulness to Jesus? We're going to look to Pastor Peter 2,000 years ago, and here's what I think he's going to say. I have this on the screen. We survive to the extent we are distinct. We survive to the extent we are distinct. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, this section begins kind of part two of Peter's letter. Verse 211 through 417, we have a kind of break in the flow of the text. This address begins with beloved. So Peter's calling them to attention. He's kind of interrupting the, the flow of his argumentation and saying, beloved, you guys, listen. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He establishes again what he said way back in verse one, that they are exiles. They are sojourners and exiles. They are pilgrims on this earth. What's interesting is some of these folks, these readers, would have been from these cities. They would have been born and raised in northern Turkey. Many of them would have had families and deep roots and family businesses, maybe even ancestral land in these cities. Yet Peter calls them exiles and sojourners. Why? It's because when you belong to Christ, you are now a participant and, a, and one who belongs to another kingdom. We're pilgrims here in this earth. Yes, one day we will inherit the earth, Jesus promises. Yes, we are God's children. We will dwell in God's new world one day, but that day hasn't come yet. And in the meantime, we are pilgrims who are living for another city. We're sojourners and exiles. The author of Hebrews describes it like this when talking about the heroes of the faith. He says, these all died in faith and having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We are sojourners and exiles who are living for another city, who are citizens of a distinct and different kingdom. And Peter says, as sojourners and exiles, as a distinct people, we're to survive to the extent that we are distinct, first in holiness. This is where he begins. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. How do we survive exile? First, Peter says, live in holiness. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, the word passions here, this word means something like an aching desire. It's a word that can be neutral, but in the Bible, it's often connected with a kind of lusty desire for evil and wrongdoing. It's like these animal appetites. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter speaks of false teachers being enslaved to desires. What the New Testament teaches us is that you and I have desires that are bad for us, which is so fundamentally different than the message of the modern world. The modern world says that if I desire it and I didn't choose to desire it, it must therefore be natural or good. But the Bible tells us this, plainly, you want things that will kill you. I desire bad things. You desire bad things. And I think this is actually super intuitive if you think about it. You know, I know that there are folks in this room who bake their own granola. But who among us doesn't at least think about ice cream at 10 p.m. at night? It just doesn't, you think about the possibility of making a sonic run. Who who among us doesn't entertain doing something like that? Who among us doesn't want to eat things that are bad for us? Surely we can understand that it's at least possible that I don't always desire things that are good for me, right? Right? The New Testament says this is true, but not just of your cravings for Oreos, but also on the level of morality. Part of the brokenness of the fall is that we want things that will kill us, even Christians. And so Peter says, as God's distinct people, we are to abstain from these desires. Peter says we're to do so as sojourners. There's a kind of otherworldliness to our lives that means we don't engage in the passions of the flesh. We abstain as sojourners and exiles, gratifying them in a way that's to be expected of the citizens, you know, the the citizens of this world are going to gratify those desires. But citizens of the kingdoms of Christ, no, that's not the way we live. Instead, we abstain because these things wage war against our souls. Do you think about that in those terms? That your passions are waging war against you? I think of Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 where after Cain takes the life of his brother Abel, God tells Cain that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. Its desire is for you. I had a friend who... uh, uh, grew up down the street from me, his name was David, and I would always go, uh, you know, after school, we'd, we'd walk kind of across the creek and go to David's house, and we'd play Tony Hawk Pro Skater. David had, always had the most recent Tony Hawk Pro Skater on PlayStation or whatever. We'd go to David's house to play the game. And the thing that always hit me as I was making my way to David's house is he had this. We'd always kind of go through his back door, which was through his garage, and we'd always have to kind of walk through, navigate the stuff that had collected in his parents' garage. But they had this cat that was a hell cat. It was just so mean. And 
anytime that we would make our way to David's house and we'd go through his back door, it, it, it would occur to us as we kind of hit the threshold of the garage is we're about to go where the Hellcat lives. And they had a, they had a, uh, a, a like a bass boat that was kind of stored in the garage and they had shelves over here on the left with the boxes of newspapers and things. They had the recycling bin and you never knew where the cat was hiding. Seriously. And, and as we'd make our way through the garage, we had to we either had to go really slow and be super attentive because that cat was lying in wait for you. Or we just had to make a beeline and run as fast as we could in or out of the garage because that cat was lying in wait for us. I always think about that particular story when I think about what God tells Cain here. That sin's desire is for you. It is crouching at your door. It longs to destroy you. And it doesn't just want to hurt you. It longs. It wants to destroy you. It is a cancer. It is, its desire is for you. Never content to stay where it is. It wants to overwhelm its host. Do you know what it's like to have, to have a war waged against you by your desires? To feel not like I'm struggling against a thing, but to feel like a thing is intent on devouring me. Your pride. Thinking that I'm the center of the universe saying that there's no mirror that I'm not in love with. Your greed, your consumption, your obsessive spending, or your obsessive stinginess, your obsessive saving, your lust, uncontrolled sexual appetites, your envy, the soul sickness of wanting the life that your friends have and constantly playing the comparison game, your anger, your deep bitterness towards a parent, your laziness, your, your being allergic to effort and addicted to comfort, your gluttony, where your God is your belly, beer, food, Netflix. I mean, do we realize that these things intend to overwhelm us? They want to conquer and colonize us. They want to devour its host. And we think we can dabble and we think we can manage. We think we can keep it at bay, but that's like fighting cancer by refusing to look at it. Anyone who has ever taken seriously trying to grow in godliness understands how deep this runs and how destructive these things are. And, and Peter says, as exiles, we must be different. We must starve the beast. We must abstain. We must wage war back for the sake of our souls. Puritan John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Imagine there's a type of person in this room that when they hear this, as soon as they hear the word holiness, their guard sort of goes up. Holiness, drawbridge up. You hear holiness and you think, isn't that like legalistic to, to talk about our works like that, to talk about the need for our behavior to change? It's, 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 the gospel's not about behavior modification, right? We don't, we don't talk about works. That's not a Christian thing. How can we harp on those words? And what I'd say to that person is, yes, you're right in that we're not saved by our works, but we are saved to works. Listen, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus dies for our sin, full stop. That Jesus is punished for us. And every week we rehearse together that we confess our sin. We're sinners. We've done things that are wrong. And then we take a big corporate sigh of relief when we say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. But the gospel also entails the wonderful truth that Jesus gives his very own spirit to us to conform us into his image. God loves you way too much to just save you from the penalty of your sin. He is also intent on saving you to a new way of living. 
empowering you to wage war against the passions of your flesh. And so through our, through our efforts at putting sin to death, we're, we're putting on virtue, and we're trying to practice virtue, and we're trying to put on obedience. The Spirit is at work gloriously freeing us, releasing us further up and further in into a life that is unencumbered by the flesh. God doesn't love us because we're holy. God loves us into holiness. By his power, he is walking us into the glorious relief of a holy life day by day by day. And I think as Peter tells us, as sojourners and exiles, not to or to abstain from the passions of the flesh, I think one takeaway for us as we think about surviving exile is that in every time and place, Christian, the most immediate threat for you is here. Christian teaching is long held that we have three enemies, the world, the devil, and our flesh. And the place that the war begins, what Peter draws our attention to first is this, the passions of the flesh. And I think that's really instructive for us, especially as we think about the changing tide of things. The war isn't first out there, it's first here. This isn't to say that there aren't real things to be concerned about and to, and to think about and to vote for. One billion percent. This is not to say that we are disinterested in the future of the state of the society that we leave for our children. One billion percent. But it is to say that the most pressing, most immediate first threat to every soul in this room is in your chest. The passions of your flesh. And as we think about surviving exile and surviving to the extent that we're distinct, the place that that begins is here, here. I read an author one time that said, all the water in the oceans can't sink a ship unless it gets inside. Taking care of this can take us a long way, if you understand what I mean. We're to be distinct. And Peter first calls us to a life of holiness. But the second thing he calls us to is a life of honorableness. Surviving exile. Secondly, we're to live honorably. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter speaks to their conduct among, among the Gentiles. This is shorthand for talking about their conduct before unbelievers. Right? So they're, they're kind of strewn across pagan nations. They're pilgrims and exiles. We're to keep our conduct among them honorable. Now, the word honorable here can also mean something like beautiful or good. We understand what it means to look beautiful, right? Right? But have you ever considered what it means to live beautifully? I think we actually get this. My wife is currently reading a book about Queen Elizabeth. And one of the reasons we love stories and biographies of these incredible people is what we might say the beauty of their lives. The goodness of their lives. Peter calls us to a kind of good or beautiful or excellent or honorable type of life, especially before the eyes of the watching world. And actually, this word that's translated honorable here pops up a few other times in the New Testament, most notably in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus makes the exact same point that Peter does. In fact, Peter is probably riffing on Jesus' teaching here. Listen to what Jesus tells his church in Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it on a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good, 
same word, good or honorable works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, so what Peter's saying is that we should be honorable, live honorably in the midst of the pagan nations. And Peter has two aims in this. First, this is something we'll see again and again in Peter. Don't let them have any information that could be used to accuse you. The world is going to oppose you. Don't give them ammunition. But the second aim for Peter and Jesus is that through our honorable living, the world might bring glory to God. Peter speaks of this, the, the, the giving glory to God on the day of his visitation. Peter's talking about the second coming, the return of the Lord Jesus. And what he's saying is that we can actually win the world by our behavior, by the quality of our lives. This is actually similar to what he's going to say in chapter 3, verse 1, when he gives a word to wives with unbelieving husbands. And he says that you can win them over by your conduct. Like the letter above, there's to be something extraordinary about our lives. We live holy and we're to live honorably. So this has some really great boots on the ground application for us. Be really, really, really good at your job. Work really, really hard. Be an absolute joy to work with in the workplace. Be on time. Be somebody who arrives early. Be someone who does the things that you say you'll do. Don't be a complainer. Don't be the person that everybody wants to avoid on the way to the water cooler. Speak well of others, especially your wife and your children in the workplace your husband, whatever it might be. Express gratitude every moment that you can, always. Be generous and hospitable. Have people over for dinner and give your money away. Live in a way that's honorable. Now, to be clear here, what Peter's saying here is not, he's not talking about being at the cool kid table, or he's not talking about being the most popular person in your neighborhood, but he's talking about living in such a way that any accusation of wrongdoing has a harder time sticking. It's about living beautifully, giving no basis for, uh, for accusation, even making the gospel plausible by the quality of your life. We survive to the extent that we're distinct. The second thing Peter holds out for us is to live honorably. One of my favorite um, Bible teachers is a guy named Don Carson. And several years ago, I was listening to him give uh, lectures on, I believe it was maybe First or Second Timothy. And what stuck out to me was he told this story about when he was in college. He had this unbelieving friend uh, who he was kind of trying to share the gospel with and a believing uh, friend who was an older man. He wasn't in college. He was just kind of an older mentor, single man, lived by himself but loved the Lord. Carson talks about how he and his buddy would go meet with this guy, his kind of older single friend, uh, and and his, his buddy was really antagonistic to the faith. And so they'd go meet with this guy, and this guy would sort of offer apologetic arguments. So he said that they would meet, and they would kind of argue in circles. They would meet, and they would argue in circles. And then finally, it arrived at this point where his mentor said, you know, look, this, this is not going anywhere. I, c- I can see that this kind of arguing in circles about, you know, these intellectual things isn't getting us anywhere. He said, but you keep coming back. And so I, here's how I think we should proceed. He said, I invite you to move in with me. I invite you to come live with me, to come watch me, to come watch my life, watch the way I live. And then after six months, then after a year, after two years, let's talk again. This unbelieving friend is now several decades deep into pastoral ministry. And that mentor's distinction is what made this possible. Do you see? 
We're to live holy lives. We are to live honorable lives. We survive by our distinction. Now, verse 13, Peter makes a little bit of a pivot. He actually turns and teases out for us what it looks like to live distinctly in these very specific situations that the Lord puts us in. He's going to talk about living distinctly as slaves, as husbands, as wives, and as citizens here in verse 13. Peter begins. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Be subject because governing authorities are instituted by God, Peter says. They're sent to punish those who do evil and praise good. Now, this is very similar to teaching that's elsewhere in the New Testament. You think of Paul's instruction in Romans 13, where it talks about governing authorities bearing the sword for the purpose of bringing order, of both uh, restraining evil and praising, rewarding the good. Both Peter and Paul tell us that there is a God-ordained role for governing authorities. They are an institution given by God to punish evil and to praise good. And Peter says, as exiles, we actually have a responsibility to submit to those authorities as appointed by God. We're to be subject for the Lord's sake. This thread runs throughout the next section of Peter's teaching. We're to be subject to these human institutions, not for the sake of these institutions, but for the Lord's sake. Our submission is directed at God ultimately. It's not first to the emperor, it's to God. So it's like we look through these human institutions to the God who's behind them, who put them in place. We have a responsibility to submit to those that are in authority over us. And even a responsibility to recognize them as appointed by God himself. But I don't think that's actually the thrust of Peter's instruction here. What Peter's primarily concerned about is holy, honorable living as citizens wherever we find ourselves. Look at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is similar to what he said just a moment ago in verse 12. Again, we'll have enemies. There's no need to give them ammunition against us. Live honorably before a watching world. We have a responsibility to, to do good. In a lot of ways, so as to not draw the attention of governing authorities and to silence those who would accuse us. This would have been really important instruction in the first century because one of the things that Christians were accused of was being insurrectionists, as being people who wanted to overthrow the established order, primarily because they would go around saying, Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. And so Peter's offering them kind of a, kind of a chess move when everybody else is playing checkers. Give no reason for the governing authorities to be suspicious of you. Show yourselves to be eager to honor them as a God-ordained institution. But don't give them any reason to oppose you. Then watch this important move he makes, verse 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter says we live to the extent that we're distinct. And I think the third way that we sort of survive exile is to live free. Live as people who are free. But not using that as an excuse for evil. We're free. Christ has paid for our sins. But that isn't license to live however we please. We put to death the passions of the flesh, right? He says we're servants of God. And on the basis of our identity as those belonging to God, we are free. Look at verse 17. This is actually brilliant. 
Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Be good to everyone. Honor all people, especially love the saints. Love those who make up Christ's church. Honor the emperor, but notice, who alone does Peter tell us to fear? God. This reminds me of Mark chapter 12. If you're familiar with this story, this is one of those instances where we see Jesus' brilliance on full display. The religious leaders approach Jesus and they want to entrap Jesus. And they come to Jesus and they ask, Jesus, should we as Jews, Roman citizens, but who are Jews, should we pay taxes? It's actually kind of a brilliant, clever question for Jesus. Because if Jesus says yes, then the religious leaders can out Jesus as a compromiser. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes, they can say, look, Jesus says you should pay taxes, which means he's complicit in the atrocities of Rome. He's a compromiser. But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, well, then they can look to the Roman authorities and see Jesus is an insurrectionist. Jesus says don't pay taxes. So it's actually kind of a brilliant move on the part of the religious leaders. It's brilliant, but matched by a far greater brilliance from the Lord Jesus. Mark 12, verse 15. Look how Jesus responds. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which is the coin used in that day. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Holds up the coin. It's got the likeness of the emperor on it. They said to him, Caesar's. Verse 17. Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Caesar's inscription is on the coin. He wants your money? Fine. Give it to him. But whose inscription do you bear? Caesar wants your money? He wants your taxes? Give it to him. But I'll tell you the one thing Caesar can't have. You know what it is? You. Peter says, we're to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Wherever we find ourselves, whatever country, whatever whatever fatherland we find ourselves in. But if we ever have to choose between the emperor and God, what we know which one we're told to fear, right? There's a type of politics that demands your heart and soul. Have you seen this? They want your money. They want your votes. You know what? That's fine. But they can't have you. You are spoken for, Christian. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Honor the emperor. Fear God. I'm reminded of the house churches in China we mentioned in recent weeks. Uh, When you hear house churches, don't think like living room churches necessarily. Some of these are several hundred people strong. They're house churches in the sense that they aren't state-approved churches. And as you can guess, a state-approved church in China is no church at all, not even a little bit. And so house churches are the unapproved, unsanctioned churches that exist, uh, kind of a movement all across China. I read a blog post recently about, uh, in 2018, where the pastor of one such house church, a guy named, a brother named Wang Yi, it's a pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church, was imprisoned. His church was raided, and more than 100 of its members were arrested. This is a picture of, of that brother here. A few years prior to this, Wang Yi wrote, and I have this quote on the screen. The church's religious freedom to proclaim the gospel and worship our God is given to us by Christ himself. 
When the government oversteps, particularly when it, uh, excuse me, uh, any infringement or stripping of such freedom is the evil act of the Antichrist and will not be spared from the fury of hellfire and God's righteous anger. What Wang Yi is saying is instructive, I think. Christian, we are free. Regardless of what the emperor or the federal government says, we are free. We are servants of God. We are not servants of the government. And when the government oversteps, particularly when it tries to suppress the church's worship and testimony to Christ, when it assumes the status reserved for God alone, which is something that is very real in China, because Christians fear God and not the emperor, we obey God. And Jesus will sort the emperor out himself. So, Pay your taxes. Play your full role as a citizen. Have an R or a D beside your name. Go for it. Submit to governing authorities as given by God. But know to whom you belong. You are free. We are God's chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are God's water bearers. And we survive to the extent that we are distinct. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. He has saved us. We are forever his. We belong to his kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever. We belong to Christ. And this is the thing that enables us to survive wherever we find ourselves on planet earth. This morning if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would ask you this. You know, I don't know what experience you've had with Christians. Maybe really good, maybe really bad. But we hope that some of the things that I've described here are actually true of the folks at Ridgewood. I hope that though we'd look the same, we'd look different, if you catch my meaning. We hope you see something compelling in us. And I would even say, if you're here and not a Christian, I would invite you, hang around us. Test us out. See if we practice what we preach. Commit to being around Christians for a season and just see. Do the things that we preach and say we believe actually bleed into our lives? Do we live distinctly and honorably? We invite you to, to hang around and see. And I'd also say this to you if you're here and you're not a Christian. I, I don't know where you're at politically. Maybe we deeply agree. Maybe we deeply disagree. But here's what I assume is true for you and for every soul in this room. You are not in love with the current political landscape in the United States right now. I'm going to go out on a limb and just assume that. And here's the question I would have for you. How can you survive all of this? Do you have any hope of things getting better? If they don't, then what? What can you hope in? What if things get worse? What if things were to get much worse? Do you have hope in another world? What we hope you see in us is that Christians play our full role as citizens. We honor the system, we participate, we labor towards the common good, but at the end of the day, we can sleep at night because we know we're exiles. We are servants of Christ, we are free. We have a forever future in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We belong to another world. And I would ask you, what can you hope in this morning? I'd earnestly invite you into belief with us. The way that we're saved is by not accumulating enough good works to get God's stamp of approval. It's rather submitting ourselves, believing to Jesus and saying, I receive you as the one who died for my sins. I'd encourage you to talk with whoever you came with this morning or grab me or any of the elders on, on the way out. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to believe. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, what I'd say to you is this. 
We survive to the extent that we're distinct. And here's the question. Are you different? Do you know that you belong to God? Do you know you have been marked by him, that you are chosen and precious? Do you look like the world or do you look like an exile? And how do Peter's words challenge you in the realm of holiness, in the realm of honorable living, even in the realm of how you engage politically? The next few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And one of the things that the Lord's Supper does for us is it marks us off from the world. It reminds us that we are a people who have been spoken for. The way this always works is uh, after I pray in just a moment, I'm going to read a liturgy. And after I invite everyone forward, after you've had space to reflect and space to sort of think and, and respond to some of the things that have been said, you can come up as you're ready. Always go to these outside walls and come forward to one of the four stations around the room. You'll grab the elements, hang on to them, go back to your seat, stand, and then we'll take everything all at once together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are yours. You are ours. In you we have hope. In you we have life. In you we have strength to endure wherever it is that we find ourselves. This morning I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and it would um, press deep into those areas where we are Lacking in distinctiveness. Would you call us into a better way of living? Would you make Ridgewood holy, honorable, free? And would you give us a kind of otherworldly joy that penetrates even the darkest, even the most pessimistic of circumstances? We, we pray for your help, Lord Jesus. And I do pray for my friends who are here this morning who have not yet believed. I do pray that your spirit would work in them and that you would use the people of Ridgewood, our lives, our interactions, to direct them towards you. 